Well, if you have a Bible with you this morning, I would invite you to turn to the Gospel of John, the Gospel of John chapter 4 and verses 27 through 42. John 4 verses 27 through 42. And this is what we read. Just then his disciples, Jesus' disciples, came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true. One sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Well, this passage, and you may have noticed this, is one unit that breaks down into three paragraphs and is actually three scenes. It's like reading a novel or watching a movie. You are in one scene, then you move to another scene, then you move back to the other scene again. Jesus' disciples return while he is talking with the woman then the woman leaves and Jesus talks only to his disciples and then the scene shifts back to the woman and the people from the town where she is at and Jesus is with them again so let's look at this in these three parts our first part our first point a woman from Samaria this is the third of three sermons on the woman at the well. So if you're visiting with us this morning or you're tuning in for maybe the very first time or you haven't been with us, this is part three of three parts of this famous passage in John chapter four of the woman at the well. I did part one on Sunday, June 28th. I did part two on Sunday, July 5th. And then I was gone for two weeks. And so now we come to part three. And since there's been a little gap there, uh, a little time in between. I want to kind of bring us all onto the same page as we look at this. In, so let me just do a little bit of review this morning. In the first message, we saw that Jesus has a divine appointment at Jacob's well with a woman from Samaria. And it is important to know that the Jews and the Samaritans despise one another. They are two distinct ethnic groups that dislike each other very much and didn't have a lot of dealings with each other. But Jesus has 
divinely, sovereignly arranged to meet with this particular woman at this particular well. And he asks her for a drink of water. And she is shocked that a Jewish man would ask her, a woman, for a drink. Because at this particular time, in this historical context, it was almost unheard of for a woman, or excuse me, for a man to speak with a woman in a public setting like this. But Jesus tells her that if she knew who she was talking to, he would have asked him for living water. And so Jesus offers her living water, the water of eternal life. That was the first message. In the second message, Jesus knows that if she is to drink of the living water, she has to confront her own sin and her own difficult background. And so he asks her to call her husband. But she says, I have no husband. And he says, I know you have no husband. You've had five husbands, and the man you are now living with is not your husband. Well, the woman tries to divert Jesus' attention by asking him about the true place of worship. Instead of dealing with her sin, she says, Our fathers say that on this mountain is where the Samaritans are supposed to worship, but you Jews, you say that Jerusalem is the place to worship. And Jesus tells her that the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. He is telling her, the hour is now here. A new day has dawned. No longer ask, where do we worship? But ask, whom do we worship? And how do we worship? No longer ask, where do we worship? But ask, her, but ask whom do we worship? And how do we worship? And then at the end of that particular text, in a dramatic moment, Jesus reveals to her that he is indeed the Messiah. She says, I know when Messiah comes, he will tell us all things. And he says, I who speak to you am he. I am the Messiah. And then if you recall, I said, if we're going to get the most out of this whole passage of the woman at the well, we have to keep three big picture truths in mind. Three kind of umbrella truths that oversee the whole text. The first is that Jesus knew everything about this woman before he met her. This passage puts Jesus' omniscience on display. Jesus knows everything about everyone. The second big picture truth is that there is a powerful and eternal contrast between Nicodemus in chapter 3 and the woman at the well in chapter 4. Nicodemus is a man. He is a Pharisee. He is a ruler of the Jews. Here we have a woman, a Samaritan, a woman with a very troubled past. These two people are completely different from each other. They are polar opposites, socially and religiously, but it teaches us that the gospel is for everyone, that Jesus has come to draw men and women to him from all different backgrounds. The third big picture truth is that Jesus never did anything by chance or accident. This is truly a divine appointment. He sovereignly 
arranged for all of the details so that he could meet with this particular woman and have a one-on-one -on -one conversation with her. That brings us to today's text. When the disciples returned to Jesus, they marveled that he was talking with a woman. In verse 27, it says, just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? Notice those two first words just then. Some English translations have at this moment, at just the right time, the disciples come back. They didn't come back too soon to interrupt this conversation that Jesus was happening, yet they came back soon enough where they saw Jesus talking with a woman, which is very important to the entire narrative, to the entire story. So not a moment too soon, not a moment too late. But they marveled. Strong language here. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but they were afraid to ask him about it. As I mentioned, in this culture, especially for a rabbi, when Jesus is a well-known rabbi by this time, it is almost unheard of for a man to be speaking to a woman in public. In fact, I read that at this time there was a saying, there was a teaching, that for a rabbi, he was never to speak to a woman in the streets, not even his own wife. But here is Jesus having this eternal, deep conversation with this woman in a public setting. And it reminds us of something very important. Jesus honors and respects and treats women with dignity. Women played a very important role in all of Jesus' ministry, whether it was his mother, Mary, or whether it was Mary Magdalene, whether it was the woman who had the issue of blood for 12 years, or the woman who was bent over and crippled for 18 years, or whether it was the Syrophoenician woman, or whether it was Mary and Martha, or it was the woman at the well. And other examples we could give. Jesus always treated people, or excuse me, treated women with great honor and respect. And here's an important reminder for all of us. Wherever the gospel goes around the world and penetrates a people group, women are elevated. Wherever the gospel goes and wherever the gospel penetrates, women are elevated. They are treated with dignity and honor and respect. In many places around the world historically, women have been treated as second-class citizens. They have been looked down upon by others, by men, but not so with Jesus. I think of our own missionary, Brad Buser. In the early part of his missionary days, he and Beth went to the Ateti tribe of Papua New Guinea. And when they went to the Ateti tribe, this cannibalistic, remote tribe, the women there were treated terribly. They were regularly raped and abused. But when the gospel penetrated the Ateti people, the men began to treat the women with respect and with honor. Husbands began to treat their wives with love and respect and with tenderness. Wherever the gospel goes, wherever the gospel penetrates, women are elevated. 
And this particular woman, in verses 28 and 29, it says, So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? Can this be the Messiah? She is so excited. I believe personally that she has been reborn by this point that she has been regenerated by the Holy Spirit and become a new creature in Christ. And she is so excited, she leaves her water jar there, the water jar that she came to fill. She just leaves it behind. And she goes into town and says to the people, Come, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can it be, can it be that this is the Messiah? And in verse 30, I want you to notice this. It says they went out of the town and were coming to him. Please keep that picture in mind. It's going to be important to the rest of the sermon. They are coming out of the town and they are coming to Jesus. So if you can picture this, the people of Sychar and Samaria are coming out of the town and they are coming to Jesus as he is speaking with his disciples. Well, that brings us to the second scene and our second point, which is supernatural food. When the disciples returned to Jesus, they returned with food and encouraged him to eat. In verses 31 through, 40 through 34, it says, Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Well, the disciples have gone into town to buy food. They come back. They know that Jesus hasn't eaten, so understandably they say, Rabbi, please eat. And he says to them, I have food. I have food to eat that you do not know about. And obviously they're confused. And so they wonder if anyone's brought him food. Who would bring him food, especially in Samaria, being a Jewish man? And then Jesus says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. So he uses natural, physical food as a springboard to tell them about supernatural food, about spiritual food. Jesus' food was to bring eternal life. Jesus' food was to do the will of his Father and to accomplish his Father's work. And folks, I want you to hold on to that because that's going to be important to the entire rest of the Gospel of John. Jesus has come to earth to do the will of the Father and to accomplish his work. That's what gives him energy. That's his mission. That's his food. That's his nourishment. And when you get to John chapter 17 and Jesus' high priestly prayer, which we'll look at in the months to come when we get toward the end of the Gospel of John, in John 17, 4, Jesus praying to the Father says, I glorified you on earth. Now watch this. Having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. That's my food, Jesus says. To do a the will of the Father, and to accomplish the work he gave me to do. Now, I want to just kind of have a side note here. I want you to notice something else. 
This is the fourth time in three chapters that Jesus says something to someone and they're totally confused by what he says. In chapter 2, he says to the Jews at the temple, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And they said it took 46 years to build the temple. What do you mean you're going to raise it up in three days? In chapter 3, he says to Nicodemus, you must be born again. And Nicodemus says, how can this be? Can a man enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And then in chapter 4, he says to the woman, what you really need is living water. And she says, where do you get this living water? You have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. And now he says to his disciples, I have food to eat that you do not know about. And they're confused. There is an important teaching here. Prayer is of critical importance to evangelism and discipleship because there are truths that we cannot understand with our natural minds. There are spiritual truths that we cannot understand with our natural minds. We need the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit to open our eyes and to open our hearts. And if we don't have that, we can't understand those truths. Four times in three chapters he says things, and people are completely confused by what he says. When you share the gospel, pray for that person. Pray that God would open their eyes. As you disciple, pray that God would open their eyes. Pray that God would open your own eyes and your own heart. Well, in an unexpected turn in the text, Jesus teaches his disciples about the eternal harvest of human souls. He takes what he said about supernatural food and he uses it to teach them about the great harvest of evangelism. And in verse 35, he says, do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Do you not say there are yet four months, and then comes the harvest? In the natural agricultural world, there's at least four months between planting and harvesting, generally speaking. But Jesus said it's not so with the great harvest of evangelism, with the great harvest of human souls. Look around you, for God is at work all over the place. You don't have to wait four months. You don't have to wait four days. God is at work in people's lives all around you. Look up. But I want you to notice something else here. When he says, look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest, this is not merely symbolic. This is literal. Go back to verse 30, and that's why I told you to hold on to that picture. They went out of the town and were coming to him. The people from Sychar and Samaria are coming to Jesus. And so he says to his disciples, look, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. There they are. They're com- the harvest is coming. I don't just mean this symbolically. The harvest is coming right now. They're coming toward us. 
And in verses 36 through 38, he says, Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, One sows and another reaps. I have sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Jesus is talking about the law of the harvest the law of the great harvest of evangelism and the law of the harvest in the realm of the spiritual is that the sower and the reaper are most often two different persons. The law of the harvest or the rule of the harvest is that the sower and the reaper are most often two different persons. One sows, one reaps. But they rejoice together. The sower and the reaper rejoice together. One sows and another reaps. What a reminder to us that as we go about our lives, we sow the seed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We never know whether we're the sower. We never know whether we will be the reaper. It may be that we are talking to someone who is hearing the gospel for the very first time. It doesn't make sense to them. They are confused. They don't believe. But you, you have sown the seed. You have done your work. You have been faithful. It may be that that person is going to hear the gospel again a third, a fourth, a fifth, sixth, and seventh time, and then maybe it's that person who shares the gospel the seventh time who actually leads that person to Christ. Or it could be the other way around. You're talking to someone who's heard the gospel three, four, five times, and you were the one who has the privilege of leading them to Christ. And we rejoice together. doesn't matter whether you're the sower or the reaper. We all rejoice together in the work of the gospel. In verse 38, Jesus said, I sent you to reap for that which you did not labor, Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. He sowed the seed in the woman at the well. She sowed the seed in the people of Sychar in Samaria. And now they're coming. And evidently the disciples will get to take part in that great harvest that is about to happen. Well, that brings us to the third scene. Our third point is many Samaritans believe. Many Samaritans believe because of the testimony of the woman at the well. In verse 39, it says, Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. That verse is more powerful than we will ever understand. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. Remember that woman came to the well at noon, at high noon. She couldn't come in the cool of the day with the other women in the morning or the evening because she was ostracized because of her sin. She was an outcast. She was a loner. She'd been married five times and was now living with a man who wasn't her husband. 
because of her testimony. Her testimony. Many Samaritans believe. And in verse 40 it says, So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. Again, there's so much there. Often, as we work through the Gospels, Jesus does a miracle or he teaches in a particular town or area and they say to him, leave us. They're afraid of him. They tell him they want nothing to do with him. But not here, in Samaria. He says, come and stay. And I don't know if you've ever noticed this before. It's so important. At the very end of verse 40, it says, and he stayed there two days. Have you ever noticed that before? He stayed there two full days He taught them for two days. Wouldn't you have loved to have been there? Jesus teaching the Samaritans, the despised Samaritans. He's spending two days with them, sharing the gospel with them. What an incredible, beautiful scene. Many more Samaritans believe because of the direct teaching of Jesus. So in verse 41, it says, and many more believed because of his word, because of Jesus' word. Then in verse 42, it says, they said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. And if you had lived at this time in history, you would have said, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? The Samaritans are acknowledging that Jesus is the Savior of the world? Oh, my. The Samaritans, the ones the Jews called half-breeds, the religious false teachers. They've come to know the Savior and they are acknowledging that he is indeed the Savior of the world. Oh, there is something here. It's absolutely astounding. I want to bring all three parts, part one, part two, and part three together for you this morning. Please notice, a revival has broken out in an unlikely place because of the testimony of an unlikely witness. A true, genuine, God-ordained, Holy Spirit-driven revival has broken out in Sychar of Samaria, the most unlikely place. And it comes. It is ignited by the testimony of a sinful woman who's been gloriously saved by the gospel. A woman who'd been married five times and was now living with a man who wasn't her husband. Oh my, never underestimate the power of the gospel. Never underestimate the power of the gospel to change a life. Never underestimate the power of the gospel to change a family. Never underestimate the power of the gospel to change a culture. Never underestimate the power of the gospel to change an entire people group. Folks, we have a glorious Savior, an amazing Savior, a wonderful Savior. Think of what we have learned about Him 
in these three messages. Jesus is the only one in the whole universe who can give you living water. If you drink of his living water, of eternal life, he promises you, you will never, you will never thirst again. Think about it. Jesus knew everything about the woman at the well before he ever met her. Jesus knows everything about you, everything about you. He knows everything about me. She said to him, when Messiah comes, he will tell us all things. And he says, I who speak to you am he. Woman, imagine this. Woman, you're talking to the Messiah. You're talking to the Savior of the world. And she, in her excitement, goes to the town, the town she's been ostracized from, the town where she's a loner, the town where she's an outcast. And she says, come, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can it be that he's the Christ? Can it be that he is the Messiah? And then they come. Oh, they come. Many. That word is repeated in the last part, in that third scene. Many Samaritans come to him and they declare that he is indeed the savior of the world. A couple of years ago, singer-songwriter Andrew Peterson wrote a song that we sing here called Is He Worthy? Is he worthy? And the echo back is he is. He is. He is worthy of all the praise and adoration and exaltation that we could ever possibly give to him. The woman from Samaria, the woman at the well could sing that song. The Samaritans could sing that song. And so can we. He is worthy of all the praise we could ever, ever possibly give him. Let's pray together. Father, we are so thankful for this actual, historical, God-inspired account that we are able to study, to learn from, and to grow from, and to praise you for where this sinful woman has been gloriously changed by the gospel. Thank you. Thank you. We can read this a million times and still learn something new from it. It is so wonderful. And thank you, Lord, for gloriously, wonderfully, mercifully, graciously changing us by that very same gospel. Oh, Lord, help us to be faithful, to sow the seed of your gospel in any and every way we can. In Jesus' name, amen.